And where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being all old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them along the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there were, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way, and as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And so, Lord, this morning, would you just honor the reading of your word? Would you go before us in this time and be high and lifted up? Lord, give us ears to hear. 
And would you speak to us this morning? And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, William Temple, the renowned Archbishop of Canterbury, defined worship this way. He defined worship as quickening the conscience by the holiness of God, feeding the mind with the truth of God, purging the imagination by the beauty of God, opening the heart to the love of God, and devoting the will to the purposes of God. You know, this morning we're going to see Abraham worshiping. You know, Abram and, and Sarah, or Sarai, had their names changed in chapter 17, indicating that they would both be heirs of this promise of God, right? That they would be a mother and a father of a great nation, right? And that Isaac was promised in chapter 17. His name being revealed, Isaac, which means laughter, right? The promise of a son was then confirmed, was then ratified by the act of circumcision. And that, that act of circumcision was to be, you know, for Abraham and for his, his following generations, an extension that they are no longer to be governed by, no longer to be living according to the flesh. Paul said in Romans 18 and 19, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present within me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that is what I practice. And see, we learned last week that we're not to live by the flesh, that we are not to live for the flesh. In other words, our flesh should not be guiding the decisions that we make, nor should we be living to feed our fleshly appetites. See, we live in a flesh-driven society, right, where everything is externally focused. Again, Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 through 18, he says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You know, and we learned last week that that we want to be walking by the Spirit, right? Not indulging in the flesh. And so, as we, as we are reminded of that this morning, you know, we see Abraham in his tent. And we see the Lord appearing to Abraham. And so as we work through this passage this morning, you know, if you're a note taker, we have two points that we're going to look at. Not six, like last week, just two. We want to look at the surprising guests that Abraham has, and we want to look at the surprising information that Abraham gets. 
So the surprising guests in verses 1 through 15, there are four things that we want to consider about these guests. It says, The Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. It says, He lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground. So just picture this, right? Abraham's in his tent, right? It's, it's during the heat of the day. He happens to look up, and there's just three men standing there, right? It's not like he sees them coming from afar off. It's not like, it's, it's not like he's watching them approach, right? It says he lifts up his eyes, and behold, that there's three men standing before him. Three men who we're going to learn are, are two angels and Jesus. Two of them are identified in, in 19 verse 1 as angels, right? In verse 1 of our next chapter, it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So, you know, in a few minutes, we're going to see Abraham have an exchange with the Lord about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And these, these two angels head off toward Sodom. And so in verse 1 of chapter 19, we see the text specifically tell us that they're angels. But then then ask the question, who's the third, right? Abraham sees three men standing before him. And I believe this third person is none other than Jesus Christ, an appearance of Jesus before the incarnation. Notice that Abraham, say, it says that he bows himself to the ground. Abraham worships this man. Angels are not worshiped, right? In scripture, angels do not accept the worship of man. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, Right? John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But Abraham bows down. Right? That's the first time, that word bowed is the first time it's, that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament. And it means to worship. Abraham is worshiping, and I believe he is worshiping Jesus Christ. And by application, right, what does that mean for us? Do our lives involve and revolve around the worship of Jesus Christ? Do our lives involve the worship of Jesus? Does the worship of Jesus revolve around what we do, what we say, what we think? You know, people often ask, what is the meaning of life? You ever get asked that question? Why are we here? What is the purpose of it all? And it's simple. It's about Jesus. It's about worshiping him. It's that simple. What's the meaning of life? Jesus, right? Isn't that the answer of every Sunday school question? 
Jesus. Abraham is worshiping Jesus, right? I mean, isn't that why we're here this morning? At least, I hope so. I hope you didn't come to hear me. Now we're here for Jesus, to give Jesus worship. To give Jesus worship. Listen, if you're here this morning, if you're coming to church to get something, I'm sorry to inform you that you're going to be disappointed. If you come to church to get, man, I hope, I hope we sing that song I like. I hope it's not too cold in the sanctuary. I hope the message isn't too long. I'm sorry, you're gonna be disappointed. No, we're here to worship Jesus. We're here to give him the spotlight, to see him high and lifted up. Revelations 4, 11 and 12 says, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Amen, Amen right? This life, the meaning of it is to worship Jesus. But guess what? It doesn't end there. Heaven is about the worship of Jesus. You know, if you want to know what we're going to be doing in heaven, it's going to be worshiping Jesus. It's all about worshiping him. You know, if you want to get a head start, you can memorize this passage, right? That those 24 elders, right, that's us. That's the Old and the New Testament church in heaven worshiping Jesus. So if you want to learn what our worship is, it's right there. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor, power. For you, were, you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Listen, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about worshiping him. Abraham got this right. You know, we talked last week about a few mistakes that perhaps Abraham made in his life, but he gets this one right. These three men approach and Abraham recognizes who's standing before him and he worships the worship of the Lord. But not just the worship of the Lord, but notice the hospitality toward the Lord. Right? The, the second thing we want to look at this morning regarding these, these special guests before Abraham is the hospitality toward the Lord. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, And he said, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham sees these three men. Right? And his response is to bow down in worship before them. But then his next response is to show hospitality toward them. 
right? These guys showed up unexpected, unannounced, right? They're just there, right? He lifts up his head. These three men are there. And instead, he's like, you're on my property. Get out, right? No, he shows hospitality. Hospitality was a big deal in their culture. It still is today in, in the Middle East. It's, it was very important. And Abraham is eager to show hospitality to the Lord and to these, these two angels. You know, growing up, uh, my grandmother had a sign that was above the, the threshold of her door that said, everyone brings joy to this house. Some as they enter and some as they leave. You know, someone said that some folks make you feel at home and others make you wish you were. Abraham is eager to show hospitality, right? To make these men feel at home, right? To see joy as they enter his tent. Listen, the Bible tells us that we are to show hospitality, right? Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Abraham here sees these three men, and he entertains. He shows hospitality, right? Fulfilling. In fact, maybe that's why Hebrews 13, 2 was, was written, right? Because Abraham is entertaining angels and the Lord himself. You know, years back when I was, when I was 17 years old, um, I was in a car accident. Um, I had gone to a church event, and it last, it was, it was like an all-night event, right? And, and I was dating this girl at the time, and I, she lived like two hours away. So I had to, after the event, I drove her back to her house. And, you know, I kept kind of nodding and dozing off as I was bringing her home. And she, you know, kind of asked the question, like, well, you know, if I'm not here to keep you awake on your way home, you know, and I remember saying, you know, at 17, like, whatever, I'll just stick my head out the window, I'll be fine, Right? Well, I fell asleep. I was doing 55 miles an hour. The, the car that I hit was also doing 55 miles an hour. So 110 mile an hour on impact, right? Head on collision. And I remember thinking like, I just killed someone, you know? And I don't remember getting out of the truck. I just remember being out of the truck. And I remember seeing the truck Afterwards, it was like a, a 90s Ford Ranger. It's like a little small pickup truck, right? And I remember seeing the truck after, and the driver's side of the cab was gone, right? Steering wheel, brake pedal, gas pedal was all pushed over into the passenger side of the truck. And there's no way you could have opened the door. I don't know how I got out. I imagine I crawled through the window or something. I remember running over to the other car thinking, like, I just, I just hurt someone, Right? And there was a guy standing there, and he says, are you the driver of that blue pickup? And I said, yep. He goes, go wait by your truck. The police are on their way. I'm like, oh, man, okay. And there was this woman, and she's like, I saw the whole thing. You look shaken up. Have a seat. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat of her car, and we're just, you know, making small talk, talking or whatever. The, the fire trucks, the EMTs, they arrive, and they 
are there's there's one EMT like in her back seat and he's like he's like holding my neck making sure I don't move the other one is in the the he's got the, the passenger doors open and he's like in the doorway of the car and he's talking about grabbing the jaws of life and cutting this woman's car apart to get me out of it and I'm like no like I walked over here I sat in the car like I can get up and they're like no 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 like they're looking at the truck going you should be dead there's clearly something going on, internal bleeding, something. We can't move you without doing more damage. And so long story short, I end up convincing them to just let me get out of this woman's car without destroying it. And they put me on the stretcher, they put me in the ambulance, and they're asking all the cognitive questions, right? What year is it? What's your name? Who's the president? You know, making sure I'm, I'm still there, right? And... Uh, I can remember, right, I'm laying on the, the, the ambulance stretcher, we're going down the hallways of the hospital, and we go into the hospital room, and there's this woman. She's already in the room. This woman I've never met before in my life until moments before that at the car accident, and she's there. She's not family. I don't know who she is. And how did she know what room, what hospital room I was going to be in? But she was just in the room. And I remember my, uh, my girlfriend at the time and her parents, I remember seeing them like walk past the hospital room. And I was like, oh, that was, you know. And so she runs out, she grabs him, she brings him into the room, and then she was gone. I never saw her again. I believe entertaining angels, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe she was a real person. Or maybe she was an angel sent by God to comfort me in those few moments while I was alone. A Abraham here is entertaining angels, right? They manifested themselves in physical form, right? They didn't look any different to him than just three men. And so Abraham is showing hospitality. And not only is he showing hospitality, but part of that is that he's feeding them the food for the Lord. Lord, it says, Abraham hurried to the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham read, uh, ran to the herd to find a tender and a good calf and gave it to the young man, gave it to a young man. And he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. You know, to us, this may seem like he's, he's overdoing it a bit. You know, but again, in that ancient culture, it was extreme. Uh, they had a very extreme and strong sense of, of hospitality to visitors. And I think Abraham knew that this was the Lord that was visiting him. So Abraham runs into the tent. He grabs Sarah and says, you've got to grab some flour, some, some dough. We've got to make some cakes. I'm going to run off and I'm going to go find the, the best goat I can find. And we're going to prepare a meal for these men. Abraham and busy, Sarah are busy running around preparing a meal for these three guests that they've never met before. But the other thing too is that these men are also honoring Abraham by accepting his hospitality. You remember the, remember the woman at the well that Jesus met 
right? And it sounded very forward when Jesus says, draw up some water and give it to me. Right, to our ears, that sounds kind of forward and kind of abrupt. But Jesus was honoring her by asking her to draw up water for him. He was raising her status socially to being equal with him. And Jesus here is honoring Abraham by allowing him to be hospitable towards them, by allowing him to prepare a meal for them. And you know, I think Jesus enjoys eating with his people. Remember in John chapter 21, in his resurrected body, right, that Peter and the disciples are out fishing, right? They come back and they say they caught nothing and Jesus is casting it on the other side. And they haul in this huge thing of fish. And Peter recognizes, like, the Lord's done this before, right? He hops out of the boat and he swims to Jesus and that Jesus already has a fire kindled. He's got fish cooking. And it says they ate breakfast with the Lord. See, I think the Lord likes to eat with his people, right? That, that there's going to be a day where he prepares the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we sit down as he serves us in the kingdom of God. You know, right now we have to be careful what we eat, don't we? We have to be careful how much we eat. Matthew 21, 30 says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Revelation 19, 9 says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. There was an old couple that had eaten healthy their entire lives. And they were in a car accident, 85 years old, and they, they both passed in the car accident. And in heaven, Jesus shows them this great banquet of food, right? Anything you can imagine was on the table, right? Whatever your favorite food is, it was there, right? And uh, the husband says, no thanks. I have to watch my cholesterol. Jesus says, no, you don't. You're in heaven, man. You've got a new resurrected body. You don't have health problems here. You don't have to worry about weight gain. You don't have to worry about heart problems. You don't have to worry about your cholesterol. And the husband turns to his wife all angry. Says, if you didn't have me eating those bran muffins, I could have been here 20 years ago. See, I think the Lord wants to share a meal with his people, with those that love him, that he is preparing a meal for us in heaven. And here Abraham is preparing a meal for the Lord, showing hospitality to him. And as they're sharing this meal together, as they're eating, right, Abraham's, he's found the, the best goat he had, right? They, they made the best cakes they could possibly make, Right, and they're sharing a meal with Jesus. And like any, like any dinner, right, there's conversation. And so they say to him in verse 9, Where's Sarah, your wife? 
So he said, here, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in years. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, I shall have pleasure, my Lord, being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. So they ask Sarah. So they're, they're, they're having this meal together, and they ask, Where, Where's Sarah? Right? They're in a tent, but evidently it was a big tent. Right? Evidently it had many compartments in it. And she was in another room or another compartment in this tent. And she's, she's listening on. Right? She's paying attention to the conversations at this, this dinner table. Jesus says that he's going he's gonna to come back. He's going to return on the, the time of life. Right? Nine or ten months or so. Right? And he says that you guys are going to have a son. Sarah laughs. You see, last week we saw Abraham laugh, but we saw him laugh out of joy because of his trust, his faith in the Lord. Sarah's laugh is a bit different. Sarah's laugh is a laugh of unbelief, a laugh of doubt. But it says Sarah laughed within herself. I mean, after all, she's, she's 90 years old. She's well past her childbearing years. In fact, the question might even be raised if she even could get pregnant, could she survive the labor process? Right? I mean, by all accounts, this shouldn't happen, right? It shouldn't work. It doesn't make sense from our earthly perspective. And in her heart, she's like, yeah, nope can't happen. Her laugh was one of doubt, as if to say, yeah, right, like that could ever happen. You know, but 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And what I find so neat about this story is that Jesus responds to the private thought of Sarah, right? She's in another room, right? You can almost picture her, right? Like kind of leaning up against like the door of, of the tent. Like, what are they talking about in there? What's going on? Oh, I'm gonna have, <laughs> I'm gonna have a kid, right? And then Jesus is like, why did Sarah laugh? Right, this is something that she said in her heart, privately in her being. The truth of the matter is, is there anything that we have that is private from the Lord? Right? We don't have any inside thoughts that he doesn't know about, that he doesn't hear. She laughs out of doubt, out of unbelief. And then she lies about it out of fear. Right? She lies about it. She's like, I didn't didn't laugh which 
outwardly was true, right? There was no outside audible laugh that she had. But Jesus heard that inward laugh. She lies about it out of fear. She was afraid that her lack of faith might be exposed. I mean, after all, it was just a little white lie, right? I mean, on the one hand, she really, she didn't laugh out loud, so was it really a lie? I mean, who was it hurting anyway? John 8, says, You are of your father the devil, and the, and the desires of your father you want to do. He is a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of them. You see, we have an enemy, and he is the father of lies. Sarah here is being dishonest because she's afraid. Ever lie out of fear? Just me? I'm the only one? She's afraid. See, God's going to do a work in their lives, just as he's working in our lives. But the truth is, is we have to trust him. We have to trust him. Luke 1, 36 and 37, right? Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Right? Doesn't he ask that question? He asks Sarah, why did you laugh? Right? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything impossible for him? Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen that he is able to do all things exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. But we have to trust in him. We have to believe in him. Again, church, if we really believe God, and if we're really gonna believe his promises, it needs to be reflected in our lives. It needs to be shown in the things that we do, in the things that we say, the things that we think about, the places we go, the decisions that we make, right? Need to be made in light of our faith, our belief in him. Have you ever had that thought? If I don't do it, it's not gonna get done. If you want something done, just do it yourself. Right? We've seen Abraham and Sarah there, right? Trying to speed up God's timeline. Well, he said he's promised us a son, but maybe there's something that we need to do here to kind of speed that along because it's been several years. I mean, after all, we're getting old. We're running out of time. 
There's nothing too hard for God. And the fact of the matter is, is he doesn't need our help in the matter. He chooses to use us for his purposes. He chooses us to use us to accomplish his will. But the fact of the matter is, is he doesn't need us, right? We need him, but he doesn't need us to accomplish his will. Matthew 6, for your heavenly father knows that you need all things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day in its own trouble. See, Sarah's worried. She's looking at tomorrow going, nah, it's too late for this. That time has passed. You had your chance, God, but you took too long. And God's like, no, nothing's too hard for me. Nothing is impossible. And whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is in your life, God can handle it. We just got to trust in him. We got to put our faith in him and worship him just like Abraham is doing. He sees the Lord and he falls, he bows down and he worships and says, this is where I need to be. This is what I need to be doing. And so the surprising guests that Jesus has also give Abraham some surprising information. Some surprising information. Let's look at verses 16 through 21. It says that the men then arose from there, right, after their meal, after the, uh, Abraham has showed some hospitality toward them, that they rise and they look toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. This was custom of showing hospitality. You would, you would show your guests and walk your guests along their journey for a time to make sure that they got underway safely. And that the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? I mean, since Abraham shall surely become a great and a mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord says, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me and if not, I'll know. The Lord is going to inform Abraham of his plans, right? The Lord's gonna bring Abraham into the loop, right? And give him the inside scoop on what's gonna happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody wonder, right? Anybody wanna know what God's plan for your life is? Or is it just me that struggles with that, right? Do I take this job? Do I buy this car? Do I move to this city? Do I homeschool? Right, you name it, right? We can come up with all kinds of different questions that we wanna ask the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I wanna be in the center of God's will for my life. That's where I want to be, but how do I know what that is? 
What does that look like? I mean, Abraham's walking down the road with these three men and the Lord's talking, right, with these other angels saying, should, should, I, should I tell Abraham what's going on? Should I inform him of my plans? Man, I'd love God to be like, hey, Mitch, here's what's gonna happen, all right? Grab a pen and paper, write it down, and here are the steps I want you to take. Here's what's gonna happen. Paul says in Romans 12, right, a familiar verse that we all know, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is the will of God for our lives that we present our bodies and we present our minds to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, right? That we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Jeremiah said, for I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. 1 Thessalonians says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, and not in passion and lust. Sexual immorality, passion and lust. We're going to find out next week that this was a major problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. But God says that the perfect will of God for you is your sanctification. Paul says again in Ephesians, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the will of God? Walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, knowing, right, that his thoughts towards us is of peace and of hope, right, a future hope. Listen, we wanna be directed by God but being, being directed by God is an act of faith, right? If we're living out these verses, right? If we're being led by the Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, if we're trusting in Him, right? If, if we're living out Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? That we're presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, that, right? That we're holy and acceptable unto God, right? That we're not being conformed by this world, right, but, but, but that we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds, right, if that represents our lives, right, then if one door, if a door opens, right, then we wanna walk by faith through that door that the Lord has opened. If a door closes, then we need to stop and consider why it's closed, right, instead of banging our head against the door, trying to open something that God has clearly closed. Before we move on to our, our last and final point, 
God says he's going to go down to Sodom. He's going to go down to Sodom to see about the sin in the city. Now, this is interesting, right? Because we believe that God is all-knowing, right? He doesn't need to go down to Sodom. He doesn't need to see it with his own eyes. He already knows what's going on. I think that this is the Lord's mercy. I think God is giving them one more opportunity to turn, one more opportunity to repent. Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God knows what's going on in these cities. He's well aware of the sin that's taking place. But he says, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to give them a little bit longer to repent. Because from our eyes and from our perspective, we're like, God, deal with it. Like, that's got to go. That's not okay. But God's saying, no, I'm long-suffering. You see, the thing is, is I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to perish. I want them to repent. So if I have to wait a little longer, I will. And I love that he includes Abraham in this. Right? At the, at the end of this, it says the men turned away from there in verse 22, and they went toward Sodom. So these two angels head down toward Sodom. And Abraham still stood before the Lord. So if there was any question on who this third person is, right, the two angels leave, and it says that Abraham is standing before the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? I mean, listen to Abraham. Like, he's like, God, I know you. I know you. And are you really going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? God, that's not you. That's not the way you are. I mean, God, suppose there's 50 righteous within the city. Abraham's bartering tactics here. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so the Lord responds and says, if I find in Sodom, 50 righteous within the city, then I'll, I'll spare it. I'll spare all the place for their sake. For the sake of 50, I'll spare the whole city. And then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, I'm but just dust and ashes, and I've taken upon myself to speak with the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? And he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And then he spoke to him again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. And he said, I won't destroy it for the sake of 40. He said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30. 
And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And then Abraham says, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I won't destroy it for the sake of 10. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So Abraham is questioning God. He's questioning the Lord. But which in fact is Abraham interceding on behalf of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Notice the heart of Abraham is in tune and in line with the heart of God. Abraham saying, I don't want to see this place perish. God, there might be righteous people in that city. I've been there. I've met some nice people there. Surely there's some righteous people. Would you destroy the righteous people with the wicked? Abraham starts off with 50. I mean, come on, right? There's got to be 50 righteous. Take our city in Manchester, right? There's got to be at least 50 righteous in this city. I mean, Abraham's using the same logic going, there's got to be at least 50 people. And he's like, well, let's subtract five. If there were five less than 50, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? 10? 10 righteous people? Why? Why is Abraham interceding for cities that are known for their wickedness, known for their sexual immorality? Right? It's no secret what's going on in these cities. Why is Abraham interceding for this sinful and wretched city? Perhaps it's because there's people there that he knows and that he loves. Lot and his family are in Sodom. I think it is interesting that Abraham stops at 10. He doesn't go to five, two. God, for one righteous person, would you spare the city? He stops at 10. It could be, we don't know this for sure, but it could be that there were 10 people in Lot's family. We're gonna get there next week, but in Genesis chapter 19, verses 12 through 25, depending on how you interpret things, it, it may indicate that Lot and his wife make two. It's possible that he had four daughters, two married and two unmarried, which would make six. Then the two married daughters would have husbands, so two of Lot's son-in-laws would make eight, and then there's a reference to his sons, plural, so if he had two sons, would make 10. We don't know, but it could be that Abraham is interceding for the 10 people in Lot's family. Either way, right, Abraham is interceding Abraham's not pleading for God's justice, but rather God's mercy. Abraham's saying, have mercy on them. There might be righteous people in that city. Hebrews says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. 
Listen, God is a just God, but he is also a God of mercy and of grace. James says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure, who have heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You see, mercy is holding back that which is deserved. Mercy is holding back that which is deserved, right? And what we deserve is hell, death, and destruction, right? In our sin, apart from Jesus, that's what we deserve. I mean, listen, we're dirty, rotten sinners, deserving of condemnation. But in God's mercy, he holds back that condemnation by the blood of Jesus Christ. Abraham is asking God to hold back his destruction, hold back his condemnation on a city that has rejected him for the sake of the righteous. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. Where, where mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And what we don't deserve, right, is forgiveness and eternal life, right? We don't deserve that. There is nothing that we have done in and through our lives that is deserving of God's forgiveness and of that gift of eternal life. But because of his grace, because of his mercy, we receive forgiveness and we don't receive condemnation. You know, when Billy Graham was driving through a small southern town, he was stopped by a policeman and charged with speeding. Graham was uh, admitted his guilt, but was told by the officer that he would have to appear in court. The judge asked, guilty or not guilty? And when Billy Graham pleaded guilty, the judge replied, it'll be $10, a dollar for every mile you went over the limit. I don't know about you, but I wish speeding tickets were like that nowadays. A dollar per mile an hour over, that'd be great. Suddenly, the judge recognized the famous minister. He says, you have violated the law, he said and the fine must be paid. But the judge said, I'm gonna pay it for you. And he took $10 out of his own wallet, attached it to the ticket, and then took Graham out and bought him a steak dinner. That, Billy Graham said, is how God treats repentant sinners. That is grace. See, this is the kind of heart that God wanted to draw out of Abraham. A heart that cared so much for people that were made in the image of God. He worked hard to intercede on behalf of a city that deserved judgment. You see, if Abraham's gonna be the father of a great and a mighty nation, Abraham needed to understand these things. He needed to understand what intercession looked like. He needed to understand what the mercy of God is. This was the heart of a great leader that would, that would lead a great and a mighty nation. This is the leader that that nation needed to have. A leader that would intercede for them. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
And let me ask you this this morning as we close. Who is it in your life that needs mercy? Right? I mean, let's face it. We all deal with difficult people. And maybe, just maybe, God has placed them in our lives so that we can show mercy to them. To show them what the love of God really looks like. To show them that God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. And instead of judging them, instead of condemning them, why don't we intercede for them? I know we all have family members that don't know the Lord. I know we all have friends, coworkers. We have people in our lives that haven't experienced God's grace and mercy. And we, like Abraham, should be interceding for them. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you this morning, God, for who you are, for what you've done in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful picture of Abraham this morning, Lord, as he intercedes for a city deserving of judgment. And God said, would you, and said, would you not destroy the city for the sake of the righteous? So, Lord, would you give us a heart like Abraham? to love on those that you've placed before our lives, Lord, to be hospitable. And God, to live lives that are representative of worship unto you. Lord, that it's all about you, Lord. We want to proclaim your name this morning and say, Jesus, we love you, we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.